while I get set up here, um, Violet suggested that I deliver this message sitting off to the side like Dave Stevens um, on a stool. And um, I don't know, that's kind of his trademark and I'm not gonna infringe on that. It's, um, it's definitely more seeker sensitive, but I feel, I feel a little more secure standing behind the podium here. So I'm gonna do it that way. All right. So um, at least a few of the sermons that we've had so far in this series on apologetics have um, spent some time talking about why apologetics is important. Josh Birch talked about this in his intro sermon that kicked off the series. Nate Elkington also talked about it and summarized it in his own words as being important to winsomely persuade unbelievers, to fortify Christians, to teach inquisitive children, and to address your own doubts. So I'm going to start off the same way and spend a couple of minutes reemphasizing why apologetics is important, why we're taking the time to do this series, and use that to lead into our topic for this morning. So in William Lane Craig's book, On Guard, which has been the primary source of the material in this series, Craig outlines three main reasons apologetics is important. One uh, is its influence in shaping culture. American society is now post-Christian, like it or not. Belief in a sort of generic God is still somewhat normal, but belief in Jesus is increasingly seen as weird, naive, or even offensive, especially when it comes to questions of morality. Secularists, secularists have been winning the so-called culture war. They would like nothing more than to eliminate religion from the public square and eventually eliminate religious belief entirely. Here in Indiana, we live in a relatively conservative, Christian-friendly part of the country, but even here, to be openly Christian is to risk being viewed as judgmental, intolerant, simple-minded, or even weird. The one exception in popular culture, maybe, popular culture maybe would be professional athletes. It seems like it's still okay for some of them to publicly mention their faith in Christ, but I'd say more and more of them are either becoming uh, sort of outcasts or trying to balance it by also, also supporting the latest form of wokeness. In this environment, Craig argues, we simply can't go out and preach the gospel to win believers because it will always be heard against the backdrop of the culture. And in an increasingly secularized culture like ours, the message of Christ will sound more and more absurd. Craig believes that, quote, if the gospel is to be heard as an intellectually viable option for thinking men and women today, then it's vital that we as Christians try to shape American culture in such a way that Christian belief cannot be dismissed as mere superstition. This is where Christian apologetics comes in. If Christians could be trained to provide solid evidence for what they believe and good answers to unbelievers' questions and objections, then the perception of Christians would slowly change. Christians would be seen as thoughtful people to be taken seriously rather than as emotional fanatics or buffoons. The gospel would be a real alternative for people to embrace. Now, I would argue that ours is becoming less and less of a thinking culture at all, and instead a culture where emotional fanaticism and buffoonery are celebrated. So just being thoughtful people may become attractive to those who are hungry for something more than the thoughtless drivel that is so commonplace today. And then to actually have well thought out answers about God and the gospel, it's a way for us to be salt and light in American culture today. Second uh, reason apologetics are important according to Craig is for strengthening believers, and we've talked about this. But having a good grasp on apologetics will make you more confident in sharing your faith with others. Um, it's, it can also help you keep the faith in times of doubt and struggle. 
This is one reason why our church is so insistent on strong teaching in our Sunday school classes and in youth group. We want our young people to be able to weather the storms that will definitely come and have something more than just religious emotions to fall back on. Craig said he finds it hard to understand how Christian couples can even risk raising children without being trained in apologetics. Something to consider. Um, it'll also make you a deeper and more interesting person. Here Craig agrees with me that our culture is superficial, self-indulgent, and fixated on celebrities and entertainment, so apologetics can help us avoid being people like that. Thirdly, apologetics has an important role to play in winning unbelievers. That's usually what we think about when we think about training in apologetics. Craig points out that we have to temper our expectations, though, and remember that only a minority of people who hear the gospel respond positively to it and place their faith in Christ. Most people will refuse to be persuaded by arguments and evidence. But we can't know what effect that uh, planting a seed or putting a pebbles in shoe might have. And every person is precious to God, made, as an, made in his image and a person for whom Christ died. Apologetics is effective in evangelism. So because we here at Tech think that apologetics is important, we've dedicated 12 weeks so far, that's almost a quarter of this year, to covering and for many of us reviewing some of the most basic arguments used to defend our faith. So let's take a, a look back at what we've covered so far to, um, to provide a bit of context and show the foundation that today's topic is uh, built upon. So uh, Josh Birch started us off, again, with an intro to apologetics, kind of laying the groundwork. Then we spent seven separate weeks looking at arguments centered around the existence of God. And that may be an oversimplification, but um, that's kind of what those covered. And then uh, the last several weeks, we looked more into the gospel and evidence of who Jesus was. And then today, I get to present to you the arguments in the final chapter of Craig's book, Is Jesus the Only Way to God? Now, I have to be honest, I chose this chapter because it sounded to me the most interesting in terms of the cultural and historical moment that we're in. Um, Heather referred to it a little bit in her uh, thoughts this morning. Because in our day and age, tolerance actually means intolerance to claims of truth. The question, is Jesus the only way to God, probably sounds more like, how dare you say that Jesus is the only way to God? And so this seemed like a topic that I wanted to become better versed in and be able to better answer myself. The thing I didn't realize is that the topic and some of the theological questions and issues that it can lead to could easily take me to places that I have no business standing up here and trying to present. So my goal today is to stick to the material as much as possible and present to you a summary of Craig's thought process on this topic. And in presenting it in a way that makes sense to me, my hope is that it will make good sense to you as well. So uh, going back to what we discussed around the importance of apologetics in shaping culture, as we've established, there is an attitude in Western culture today that allows for belief in the existence of God, but not for belief that there is any one true religion. We live in a pluralistic society, and we'll come back to what that term means, where it's not only politically incorrect, but considered intolerant, bigoted, or even hateful to claim that God has revealed himself decisively in Jesus. So, uh, first of all, um, Craig starts off by establishing that this is exactly what the New Testament teaches, that um, Paul, in his letters, frequently makes the point that the general condition of mankind without Christ is alienation and hopelessness and slavery to sin. To his Gentile converts in Ephesus, he wrote, quote, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, 
and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. In the opening chapters of his letters to Rome, uh, to the Romans, Paul explains that no one can save themselves by righteous living, so we're helpless. But God has provided a, me a means of escape from sin. Jesus died for the sins of all mankind and satisfied the demands of God's justice and reconciled us with God. His atoning death made the gift of salvation available to be received by faith. So the logic of the New Testament teaching is clear and consistent. The universality of sin and the uni uniqueness of Christ's atoning death mean that there is no salvation apart from Christ. Scripture makes it pretty clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Acts 4, 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no, one, no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So that's New Testament teaching. Um, Craig then makes the case that this doctrine held pretty firm until the expansion of Europe, the period of exploration and discovery from 1450 to 1750, roughly. Think back to what you learned in school about Columbus, Magellan, and so on. They discovered new civilizations that knew nothing about Christianity. There was a realization that much of the world was like this, and so it affected the way people thought about religion. First of all, it relativized religious beliefs. Christianity was not the universal religion of mankind. It was confined largely to Western Europe, just a corner of the globe. So no religion could claim to be universally valid since each society seemed to have its own religion suited to its needs. Second, it made Christianity's claim to be the only way of salvation seem narrow and cruel. During this time, there were Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire who criticized Christians with ideas like the prospect that millions of Chinese were doomed to hell for not believing in Christ when they had never even heard of him. Now in our day, there's an influx of non-Western immigrants into Western societies, bringing with them their religions and cultures. And the advance of the internet has shrunk the world and made us more of a global village where we're even more aware of religious diversity. So now religious pluralism, the view that there are many roads to God, has become the conventional wisdom. So what problem does religious diversity pose to us? First, um, some definition of terms. Religious particularism, <laughs> the word catches me. Religious particularism is the view that only one religion is a means of salvation. Religious pluralism is the view that many religions are means of salvation. The mere fact that we have religious diversity is assumed to imply the truth of pluralism. For pluralists, Christian particularism is not a view that can be defended, but, at, but most use fallacious arguments to back their claim. So we're going to look at some of those fallacious arguments. Uh, many arguments in favor of pluralism are almost tech, textbook examples of informal fallacies. So again, uh, real briefly, some definitions. A fallacy is simply an error in reasoning. Um, two categories of fallacies are formal and informal. Uh, formal fallacy involves breaking the rules of logic, logic and informal fallacy involves an illegitimate argumentative tactic, uh, such as circular reasoning. Two of these in particular, uh, two of these informal fallacies in particular, are used to support religious pluralism. One is uh, argument ad hominem, which involves invalidating a position by attacking the character of those who hold to it. The second is a genetic fallacy, which involves invalidating a position by criticizing the way a person came to hold that position. In other words, arguments are dismissed based solely on their source of origin, or their genetics, rather than their content. So looking at the argument ad hominem fallacy here, uh, it goes like this. 
It's arrogant and immoral to hold to any kind of religious particularism because you then must regard everybody who disagrees with you as mistaken. Therefore, religious particularism is false. But to that we could say, the truth of a position is independent of the moral character of those who believe it. To illustrate, imagine a medical scientist who finally discovers a cure for cancer. It's tested and peer-reviewed, and it works. But suppose this person is really full of himself. He boasts about his own discovery, claims he deserves the Nobel Prize, looks down on and insults his colleagues as inferior to him, and so on. So he's clearly arrogant. And what if, he turned out, uh, what if it turned out he also used illegal means of funding his research and was a pedophile? He's immoral, too. But does that undermine or invalidate his actual discovery? If it cures cancer, it cures cancer. And if you or someone you loved had cancer and could be rid of it using the cure he discovered, would you refuse it because he's arrogant and immoral? The truth of a position is independent of the character of those who hold it. And even if it were the case that all religious particularists were, agent or were arrogant and immoral, that would do nothing to prove that their particular views are false. Looking at the genetic fallacy, it goes like this. Christian particularism can't be correct because religious beliefs are culturally relative. If you had been born in Pakistan, you would likely have been a Muslim. Therefore, your belief in Christianity is false or unjustified. To this, we'd answer, the fact that your beliefs depend upon where and when you were born has no relevance to the truth of those beliefs. Craig's example here, if you'd been born in ancient Greece, you probably would have believed that the sun orbits the earth. So does that mean that your belief that the earth orbits the sun is therefore false or unjustified? With this argument, a pluralist actually pulls the rug from beneath his own feet because his beliefs are culturally relative too. If he'd been born in Pakistan, he would have likely been a religious particularist. His pluralism is merely the product of being born in late 20th century Western society. So by his rationale, it's also false or unjustified. So now we're going to look at um, the problem with Christian particularism. And as shown, some of the arguments you frequently hear against Christian particularism are pretty unimpressive. But just because fallacious arguments like these are often used, it doesn't mean that pluralism doesn't pose a serious challenge to Christian belief. It does. But if we can sort of clear away these fallacious arguments, we can get to the real problem lurking in the background, which is the fate of unbelievers outside of one's own religious tradition. In our case, those outside Christianity are condemned to hell, and pluralists take that to be unreasonably excessive. To illustrate this, Craig gives the example of his own doctoral mentor, John Hick, who began his career as a relatively conservative Christian theologian. But the more he studied other world religions and began to become acquainted with some other really good people who adhered to them, he could not accept that they should be condemned to hell. He realized uh, what that meant, that he had to get rid of the truth of Christ's incarnation and atoning death. This is from John Hick. The problem which has come to the surface in the encounter of Christianity with other world religions is this. If Jesus was literally God incarnate, and if it is by his death alone that men can be saved, and by their response to him alone that they can appropriate that salvation, then the only doorway to eternal life is the Christian faith. It would follow from this that the large majority of the human race so far have not been saved. But is it credible that the loving God and Father of all men has decreed that only those born within one particular thread of human history shall be saved? Thus, the real problem raised by the religious diversity of mankind is the fate of those who stand outside the Christian tradition. Craig goes on to examine what, that might, what might be the main problem that pluralists have with the Christian doctrine of salvation in light of this. 
First of all, is the problem simply that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell? Does God desire to send people to hell? And does he actually send them? The Bible says that God wills the salvation of every human being. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In the book of Ezekiel, God literally pleads with people to turn back from their self-destructive course of action and be saved. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? In a sense, God doesn't send anybody to hell. His desire is that everyone be saved, and he seeks to draw all persons to himself. If we make a free and well-informed decision to reject Christ's sacrifice for our sin, then God has no choice but to give us what we chose. God doesn't send us to hell, we send ourselves. Our eternal destiny lies in our own hands. It's a matter of our free choice. Those who are lost separate themselves from God despite God's will and every effort to save them, and God grieves over their loss. So it doesn't seem that the main problem is that a loving God sends some people to hell. Craig goes on to look at whether the problem is one of proportionality. The pluralist might admit that given human freedom, God can't guarantee that everyone will be saved because some people might freely condemn themselves by rejecting God's offer of salvation. But he might argue it would be unjust of God to condemn such people forever. Even terrible sins like those of the Nazi torturers in the death camps still only deserve a finite punishment, not eternity in hell, they would say. At most, hell should be like a purgatory, where people stay an appropriate length of time before being released and admitted into heaven. Eventually, hell would be emptied and heaven filled. So God is unjust because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But there are two flaws to this objection that God is unjust. One, it equivocates between every sin we commit and all the sins we commit. We could agree that every individual sin that a person commits deserves only a finite punishment. But it doesn't follow from this that all of a person's sins taken together as a whole deserve only a finite punishment. If a person commits an infinite number of sins, then they would deserve infinite punishment. Nobody can commit an infinite number of sins in the earthly life, but if the inhabitants of hell continue to hate God and reject him, they continue to sin and accrue more guilt and more punishment. Craig says that hell is self-perpetuating. Every sin has a finite punishment, but because sinning goes on forever, so does the punishment. Um, I have to point out here, again, that Craig is saying that it's at least plausible that the damned in hell do go on sinning forever. Another objection, though, uh, another flaw in the objection, is why I think that every sin does have only a finite punishment. We could agree that sins like theft, lying, adultery, and so forth are only of finite consequence and so only deserve a finite punishment. But these sins aren't really what separates someone from God. Christ died for those sins. The penalty has been paid. One only has to accept Christ as Savior to be free and cleansed from them. But it's the refusal to accept Christ and his sacrifice that's the ultimate sin. To reject Christ is to reject God himself. And in light of who God is, this is a sin of infinite gravity and proportion 
and therefore plausibly deserves infinite punishment. To put it another way, punishment is the infinite sin, is infinite because it is a sin against an infinite God. We should not think of hell primarily as punishment for the array of sins of finite consequence that we've committed, but as the just penalty for a sin of infinite consequence, the rejection of God himself. So is the real problem for pluralists that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell because they were uninformed or misinformed about Christ? Pluralists might say, people who have never heard of Christ or who have been given a distorted picture of Christ can't be expected to place their faith in him. It's here that I'm going to take a brief pause in Craig's line of uh, reasoning to say that the position he's going to take from here on uh, that I'll be talking about represents a view called inclusivism. When it comes to the question of people who have never heard of Christ, there are two dominant positions among professing Christians, inclusivism and exclusivism. Both views maintain that Jesus is the only way to God, but only one insists on the necessity of conscious faith in him. Inclusivism is the position that Jesus' atoning work on the cross provided salvation for some people who do not overtly believe in Jesus. The teaching is that salvation is still provided based on Jesus' work on the cross, but that a person does not have to explicitly believe the gospel in order to be saved. Inclusivists still believe that everyone who, uh, will, who will be saved will be saved by Jesus Christ, but there may be some who do not put their faith in Jesus as Savior, yet are saved by him. Exclusivists, on the other hand, say that personal faith in Jesus is the only way to heaven and eternal life with God. Um, okay, I was a slide behind there. A quote from C.S. Lewis. Here's another thing that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. So it seems fairly clear which view C.S. Lewis held when he wrote this. Um, and much more could be said about these two positions, but to continue on, uh, back to the question of whether the problem is lack of information. Craig argues that according to the Bible, God doesn't judge people who have never heard of Christ on the basis of whether they place their faith in Christ. Rather, God judges them on the basis of the light of God's general revelation in nature and conscious that they do have. Here, uh, Craig uses Romans 2.7 as evidence when it says, To those who by persistence in good and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. This is an offer of salvation, Craig says. Someone who senses his need of forgiveness through his guilty conscience and flings himself upon the mercy of God revealed in nature may find salvation. Um, as another side note, Dave Stevens is going to be talking more about this particular passage when he picks up his study of Romans next month. So I'm going to let him expound on whether this verse uh, or this passage should really be used in this argument or whether it's a bit of a stretch. But the point is, uh, this doesn't mean people can be saved apart from Christ. It just means that the benefits of Christ's atoning death can be applied to people without their conscious knowledge of Christ. These people would be like certain ones mentioned in the Old Testament, like Job and uh, Melchizedek, who were saved only through Christ, but had, who had no conscious knowledge of him. Unfortunately, the testimony of the New Testament is that people don't generally measure up to even these much lower standards of general revelation, so there's not much optimism that many people will be saved through their response to general revelation alone. Still, the point is that salvation uh, is universally accessible 
through God's general revelation in nature and conscience. So the problem of religious diversity can't be simply that God would not condemn, pers condemn persons who are uninformed or misinformed about Christ. So what's the real problem? If God is all-knowing, then he knew who would freely re receive the gospel and who would not. And this raises difficult questions. One, why didn't God bring the gospel to people who he knew would accept it if they heard it, even though they reject the light of general revelation that they do have? And Craig uh, provides this illustration. Imagine a Native American living prior to the arrival of Christian missionaries. He attributes the beauty and intricacy of nature and the heavens at night to a great spirit. When he looks into his heart, he senses a moral law telling him that all men are brothers created by the great spirit and that we ought to live in love for one another. But instead of worshiping the great spirit and living in love for fellow man, he ignores the great spirit and creates totems of other spirits and lives in selfishness and cruelty towards others. In this case, he would be justly condemned before God for failing to respond to God's general revelation in nature and conscience. But suppose that if missionaries had come along, he would have believed the gospel and been saved. In that case, his salvation or damnation seems to be the result of pure luck. And would an all-loving God allow people's eternal destiny to hinge on historical or geographical happenstance? More fundamentally, why did God even create the world when he knew that so many people would not believe the gospel and be lost? Since creation is a free act of God, why not simply refrain from creating any free creatures at all? Even more radically, why didn't God create a world in which everyone freely believes the gospel and is saved? Such a world must be logically possible, so why didn't he do that? How do we respond to these questions? Does Christianity make God out to be cruel and unloving? So now to analyze this problem. To answer these questions, let's examine the logical structure of the problem. And the problem is similar to the logical version of the problem that evil, a problem of evil that Josh Miles walks us through. Pluralists claim that it's impossible for God to be all-powerful and all-loving, and yet for some people never to hear the gospel and be lost. The pluralist claims that the following statements are logically inconsistent. One, that God is all-powerful and all-loving. Two, that some people never hear the gospel and are lost. Thus, Christian particularism is logically in incoherent. But is there in an inconsistency? Why th think that these two statements are logically inconsistent? There's no explicit contradiction between them. If the pluralist is claiming that the statements are implicitly contradictory, according to Craig, he must be assuming some hidden premises that would serve to make it explicit. Craig writes that he's never seen a religious pluralist attempt to identify those hidden assumptions, but he's willing to help them out a bit in this case. So in order to make this work for the pluralists, he, add these, he adds these premises. Three, if God is all-powerful, he can create a world in which everybody hears the gospel and is freely saved. And four, if God is all-loving, he prefers a world in which everyone hears the gospel and is freely saved. Now let's think this through. Since according to one, God is all-powerful and all-loving, then he could create a world of universal salvation, premise three. And he would prefer such a world, premise four. Since such a world exists, it would contradict two, where some people never hear the gospel and are lost. Both of these hidden premises, three and four, have to be true to prove the logical incompatibility of one and two. So are these assumptions necessarily true? Looking at premise three, 
God could create a world in which everybody hears the gospel. No big deal. But if people are truly free, there's no guarantee that everyone in that world would be freely saved. In fact, there's no reason to think that the balance of saved and lost in a world where everyone has heard the gospel would be any better than in our actual world. It's logically impossible to make someone freely do something. That's a contradiction. And also, love has no value unless there's, no cho- unless there's a choice to not love. God could have made us all robots with no choice to obey or not obey, but what value would that be? Would he really want that? Further, being all-powerful doesn't mean having the ability to do the logically impossible, such as creating a square circle or creating a stone so heavy that even he could not lift it, the so-called omnipotence paradox. So we can't really know that it is even feasible for God to create a world in which everyone hears the gospel and is freely saved. For all we know, in any world of free people that God could create, some people would freely reject his saving grace and be lost. So number three is not necessarily true, and therefore the pluralist's argument has an error in its reasoning. It's fallacious. What about number four? Is it necessarily true? Let's go ahead and grant that number three is true, that there are possible worlds that are feasible for God to create where everyone hears the gospel and freely accepts it. Does God being all-loving compel him to prefer one of these worlds over a world in which some people are lost? Not necessarily. Worlds involving universal salvation might have other overriding deficiencies that actually make them less preferable. For example, what if the only possible worlds God could have created where everyone freely believed the gospel and is saved were worlds with only seven or eight people in them? Does God have to prefer one of these worlds over a world where many multitudes of believe and are saved, even if there are some that freely reject the gospel and are lost? As long as God gives sufficient grace for salvation to everyone he creates, God seems no less loving for preferring a more populous world, even if that means some people would be lost. So the pluralist's second assumption in number four is also not necessarily true, and his argument is actually doubly fallacious. Unless the pluralist can suggest some other premises, we have no reason to think that one and two are logically incompatible. But we don't need to leave it at that. We can push our argument a bit further in a positive way. We can show that it's entirely possible that God is all-powerful and all-loving and that many persons never hear the gospel and are lost. This is where it gets a little tricky to follow, um, so just try and stay with me if, if I haven't lost you already. God is both good and loving and would want as many people as possible to be saved and as few as possible to be lost he would want an optimal balance. Isn't it possible that the actual world we live in has that balance? In other words, isn't it possible that in order to create the maximum number of people who will be saved, God also had to create a certain number of people who will be lost? It's possible that if God had created a world in which fewer people go to hell, then there would be even fewer people who go to heaven. But again, someone may object that an all-loving God would not create people he knew will be lost, but who would have been saved if only they'd heard the gospel. And Craig's answer to that is, how do we know that there, are any, that there are any such people? It's reasonable to assume that many people who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it even if they had heard it. Suppose then that God, in his mercy, has providentially ordered the world so that all people who never hear the gospel are the same ones who wouldn't believe it if they heard it anyway. Shouldn't we trust God's goodness enough to assume that he wouldn't allow someone to be condemned due to historical or geographical chance? In this case, Craig argues, anybody who never hears the gospel and is lost would have rejected the gospel and have been lost even if he had heard it. 
no one's going to stand before God on judgment day and complain, all right, God, so I didn't respond to your general revelation in nature and conscience, but if only I'd heard the gospel, then I would have believed. And we could speculate that God might say to that, no, I knew that even if you had heard the gospel, you wouldn't have believed it. Therefore, my judgment of you on the basis of nature and conscience, which you willingly turned your back on, is neither unfair nor unloving. So therefore, it's possible that God has created a world that has an optimal balance between saved and lost, and those who never hear the gospel and are lost would not have believed, it, believed in it even if they'd heard it. As long as five is even possibly true, it shows that there's no inconsistency between an all-powerful, all-loving God and some people's never hearing the gospel and being lost. So now we can offer possible answers to the three difficult questions that prompted us to analyze this problem. And taking them in reverse order, why didn't God create a world in which everyone freely believes the gospel and is saved? It may not be feasible for God to create such a world. If it were feasible, then all else being equal, God would have created it. But because it was his will to create free creatures, he had to accept that some would freely reject him and his efforts to save them. Question two, why did God even create the world when he knew that so many people would not believe the gospel and be lost? Answer, God wanted to share his love and fellowship with created persons. He knew this meant that many would freely reject him and be lost, but he also knew that many others would freely receive his grace and be saved. The happiness and blessedness of those who would freely embrace his love shouldn't be precluded by those who would freely reject him. In other words, those who reject him shouldn't have a sort of veto power over which worlds God is free to create. Again, in his mercy, God providentially ordered the world to achieve an optimal balance between saved and lost by maximizing the number of people who freely accept him and minimizing the number of people who would not. And question one, why didn't God bring the gospel to people that, who he knew would accept it if they heard it, even, if they, even though they reject the light of general revelation that they do have? The answer here that Craig gives is there are no such people. God has arranged the world so that those who would respond to the gospel if they heard it do hear it. He ordered human history so that as the gospel spread from first century Palestine, he placed people in its path who would believe it if they heard it. God ensured that no one who would believe the gospel if he heard it is born at a time and place in history where he doesn't get to hear it. And those who don't respond to general revelation and then never hear the gospel wouldn't respond to it if they did hear it. No one is lost because of historical or geographical accident. Anyone who wants or even would want to be saved will be saved. So these are just possible answers to the questions posed, but as long as they're even possible, they show that there's no incompatibility between God's being all-powerful and all-loving and some people's never hearing the gospel and being lost. And these answers seem to work well because they seem to be consistent with Scripture. Paul, in speaking to the Athenian philosophers at the Areopagus, says in Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else, everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appropriate times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. This does sound consistent with the conclusions that Craig has come to. So now looking at the plausibility of the solution. A pluralist might concede the logical possibility of God's being all-powerful and all-loving and some people's never hearing the gospel and being lost, but insist that these two facts are improbable 
with respect to each other. People seem to just believe in the religion of the culture in which they were raised. In that case, the pluralist might argue it's highly probable that many of those who never hear the gospel had been raised in a, that if many of those who had never hear the gospel had been raised in a Christian culture, they would have believed the gospel and been saved. Thus, Craig's hypothesis is highly implausible. Craig agrees that it would be fantastically improbable that by chance alone it turned out that all those who never hear the gospel and are lost are pe- are people who wouldn't have believed the gospel if they heard it anyway. But that's not his hypothesis. His pi- hypothesis is that a provident God arranged it that way. Given a God who is all knowing. It's not implausible uh, that he could order the world that way. Such a world wouldn't look outwardly different from a world where the circumstances of a person's birth were pure chance. We could even agree that people do do generally adopt the religion of their culture and that if many of those born into non-Christian cultures had been born in a Christian society instead, they would have become at least nominally or culturally Christian. But that's not to say that they would have been saved. Think about the people you know that were born into Christian families or into this um, now post-Christian nation, but still haven't accepted the gospel. Craig makes the point that it is an empirical fact that there are no distinguishing psychological or sociological traits of people who receive Christ and those who don't. Since there's no outward difference between a world where people's birth is a matter of chance and a world where God arranged it that way, Craig argues that his hypothesis can't be found improbable. Um, I'm not going to play this video, but if you're interested in kind of getting a summary of what I just went through, um, this is from the Reasonable Faith website, William Lane Craig's um, work, and it's a a pretty good video that just kind of sums up uh, what we talked about, um, and a lot of the work that's out there obviously is is a good resource for you to use um, to dig deeper into these questions. So... In conclusion, in light of the arguments Craig has laid out, pluralists haven't been able to show any logical inconsistency in Christian particularism. Two, we can prove that such a position is logically coherent and that it's not only possible but plausible as well. And three, therefore, the religious diversity that exists in our world doesn't itself undermine the Christian gospel of salvation through Christ alone. In light of all this, how should we view our mission as Christians? Thinking through this and having a good grasp of these arguments and answers should actually help put the uh, proper perspective on our mission. Craig offers three points. One, it's our duty to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Two, we can trust that God has ordered things so that through us, the good news will come to persons that he knows will accept it if they hear it. And three, our compassion to those in other religions is expressed not by pretending that they aren't lost without Christ, but by making every effort to reach them with the gospel. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always the very end of the age. In closing, um, I appreciated the opportunity to prepare for today. Um, some of this stuff is difficult to be sure, and it takes some work to think through. But thankfully, uh, we do have resources. Um, we have a church that takes uh, this seriously. Um, and we have people like William Lane Craig, who we support as a church, um, and who has dedicated his life to helping people have a reasonable faith. So I just uh, encourage you to do the work yourselves, 
Use the resources, resources that we have. Teach yourselves, um, teach your children, and when you do come to difficult questions and things that we can't know with 100% certainty, just be thankful we have a God who is good and just and trust in his sovereignty. Thank you, Nate. Um, as I was reflecting on Nate's closing or concluding remarks, that it's our uh, that it's our duty, and that we're make, we're to make every effort to proclaim the gospel. I was reminded of sort of a foundational component of this that's often not addressed, namely our conduct, how we choose to live. And consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.16, to let our light shine before others so that they might see our good works and give glory to the Father. Or Peter in, in 1 Peter 2 says to keep your conduct honorable. Why? To glorify God. Or again, in chapter 3, Peter says, when he's talking about having a ready defense for what we believe, what does he say? He says, conduct yourselves in that defense with gentleness and with respect. And lastly, maybe my favorite, Paul's instructions to Titus. He's, he's telling Titus, here's what you have to teach to these individuals. And in particular, in this case, here's what you have to teach to people who are in one of the lowest states of society, people who are slaves in society. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, encourage them in their godly conduct, so that in everything, he says, they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our conduct comes first. Before the coffee shop meeting, before preaching from the street corner, before uh, sharing with unsaved friends and family, I believe that conduct comes first. Showing ourselves, as Paul says in Titus 2, 7 through 8, in all respects to be models of good works so that our opponents will have nothing evil to say about us. And the message of the gospel, it's clear, is a stumbling block enough to both Jew and Gentile. We don't need to add another hurdle to its reception through our poor behavior and hypocrisy. If the world is watching us and sees no difference in our behavior from their own why would they, why should they listen to what we claim is life-changing? Yes, it is the message of the gospel that saves, and it's not our, our good works that save, but the reception of that message will either be hindered or aided by how we choose to live, by how we conduct ourselves. So thank you again, Nate, for, for leading us through that study. It was both helpful and it was informative, and I would echo Nate's challenge to you all to uh, take the time. If there were parts of that that seemed unclear to you, go back, read, talk to Nate about good resources to study, and double down on this. Now, in closing, I want to leave you all with a, with a word of encouragement. As we watch the elections unfold in these United States and as we watch governments rise and fall around the world and as we hear of war and rumors of war and disease 
and death we face, let's not forget that God is still on his throne. He has not given up. He has not abdicated. He still rules. And he forever will rule. And those of us who know him do well to place our trust in him and in him alone. While we go out and vote, while we live as good citizens, while we perform our civic duties to the best of our abilities, we do not place our trust in Washington. We don't place our trust in our senators, in our House representatives, in our judges. We don't place our trust in the might of this nation to hold the world together. We don't place our trust in our wealth, in our money, in our health, in our stability. We must place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when everything else fails, when it all shatters and crumbles, he will remain. Amen? I'm going to ask the music team to come back up one more time and we'll sing Ancient of Days together. And I challenge you to reflect, reflect on these words as we sing them.
Amen. From 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace and greet each other this morning.